MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. Today, the Manhattan District Attorney gives more clues about what he's investigating, including possibly bringing criminal charges for tax fraud. Bill Barr labels New York City, Portland, and Seattle as anarchist jurisdictions and waves stripping federal funds. A Kentucky GOP lawmaker is indicted on assault and accused of strangling a woman with an Ethernet cable. The CDC reverses itself again, and the HHS secretary says a Trump vaccine will have liability protections from lawsuits as he seizes power over the FDA. Trump seals off access to the steps of the Supreme Court building. And with a cash windfall, Biden adds GOP states to his campaign map. And finally, a nationwide injunction is issued to shield mail-in votes during the pandemic. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, hey, everyone. Big, big show today. I will be speaking with Lynette Graybull. She is running for the House seat in Wyoming. And we will be joined later by the author of Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, David Scheimer. His book was just uh, made, he, he got the New York Times editor's pick. That's so good. And, of course, we'll have the good news block for you at the end. We got some confessions, too. And I wanted to tell you that this Friday I'll be speaking with the writer and director of The Comey Rule, um, Billy Ray. Uh, and that's ahead of the premiere of the two-part movie on Showtime that premieres this Sunday, September 27th. I have seen it. It is incredible. It is well-researched. The cast is amazing. And there's a lot in there that you will need to see to decide whether or not Comey is your homie. And uh, we will also be speaking with a 35-year NSA veteran on the FISA process in light of the Department of Justice Inspector General being asked to look into 2020 election interference by Barr and Durham. That'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, thanks again to our generous patrons who have donated one-year premium memberships to those who can't swing it or our frontline workers, veterans, uh, healthcare workers, etc. Your generosity is incredible. It's mind-blowing. I'm consistently awed and floored by your generosity. So thank you. And patrons, don't forget to join us Saturday for the fourth installment of the seven-part series on Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough, with myself and Dana Goldberg. Um, and that is for patrons. You get that ad-free. We do have a lot of headlines to get to today. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story today is a scorcher. This is from The New York Times. Quote, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which has been locked in a year long battle with President Trump over obtaining his tax returns, suggested for the first time on Monday that it had grounds to investigate him and his business for tax fraud. The assertion by the office of the district attorney, Cyrus Vance, offered a rare detailed disclosure about the office's investigation into the president and his business, which began this investigation more than two years ago. Uh, we we know uh, that Vance has gotten information from Deutsche Bank about a year ago. We assume he has gotten the president's New York tax returns for the federal or excuse me, for the grand jury, not a federal state. Uh, and until today, he had not revealed the full scope of his criminal in inquiry, citing uh, grand jury secrecy. The investigation has been stalled over the fight uh, over a subpoena that the office issued to Mazars in August 2019 for eight years of his tax returns. 
Lawyers for Trump have said the subpoena should be blocked, calling it widely overbroad and politically motivated. Mr. Vance responded to that argument today in a new court filing that did not directly accuse Trump or his business of wrongdoing, but... Prosecutors did list that news reports and public testimony that alleged misconduct by Trump and his businesses and that those reports would justify a grand jury inquiry into a range of possible crimes, including, but is presumably not limited to, tax fraud, insurance fraud and falsification of business records. Those are the three things that we have been saying Uh, are being investigated since this was with the Southern District of New York before that case was closed. This was the first time the office had included tax fraud among the possible areas of investigation. We had assumed this uh, tax fraud and insurance fraud go kind of hand in hand because of what Trump was doing, at least what Cohen had testified that he had done and what all of the documentation that Mary Trump handed over to The New York Times in their explosive 2018 story about Trump's finances. And the, the trick that he does is when he's applying for loans from banks, he inflates his assets. And when he is applying for uh, insurance, he deflates the value of his assets or inflates them, depending on whether he wants lower or higher coverage. And he also uh, deflates his assets, the the value of his assets, to pay fewer taxes. That's tax fraud. We knew that was happening. Uh, We had assumed that he was being investigated for tax fraud as well. And it's been confirmed today. So means come true. Quote, even if the grand jury were testing the truth of public allegations alone, such reports taken together fully justify the scope of the grand jury subpoena at issue in this case. That is from the filing today from prosecutors. Uh, No comment from the shitbag Seculo. And the president has said he expects the dispute over the subpoena will end up in the Supreme Court. Kind of makes you wonder why Republicans are trying to jam that SCOTUS uh, pick uh, in as soon as possible. Right? And just to be dicks and get it done before he, you know, could lose. Uh, And from Reuters today, more fuckery from Bill Barr's Justice Department. The U.S. Justice Department on Monday threatened to revoke federal funding for New York City, Seattle, and Portland saying that these three liberal Democratic cities were allowing anarchy and violence on their streets. Quote, we cannot allow federal tax dollars to be wasted when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. That's according to Barr. He said that in a statement. So did you hear that? New York, Seattle, Portland. Bill Barr thinks that tax dollars spent on you are a waste. In a joint statement, Uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin accused the Trump administration of playing politics and said withholding federal funds would be illegal. We know Barr just sort of tried to get people to indict Jenny Durkin or, you know, investigate her. Their statement says, quote, this is thoroughly political and unconstitutional. The president is playing cheap political games with congressionally directed funds. Our cities are bringing communities together. Our cities are pushing forward after fighting back a pandemic and facing the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, all despite recklessness and partisanship from the White House. That's part of that joint statement from the mayors. Last week, the Justice Department urged federal prosecutors to consider sedition charges against protesters who have burned buildings, quote unquote, and engaged in other violent activity. And Monday's threat to revoke federal funds was the government's latest escalation in its quest to curb the protests. Personally, not only do I see this labeling of Democratic cities uh, as anarchic, as a way to block federal funding, but I see it as a pretext to potentially declare martial law 
maybe in an attempt to seize emergency power, maybe during an election. I'll keep an eye on it for you, and we'll let you know. Next up needs a content warning for sexual assault. We'll be on this story for about a minute, minute and a half. As a freshman, Kentucky legislator uh, Robert Goforth joined his colleagues to pass a bill that would make it easier to prosecute strangulation. Last week, that same bill, now a state law, after it passed at the urging of domestic violence advocates, became a factor in his own case. A grand jury in Laurel County, Kentucky, on Friday indicted Goforth, a former candidate for governor, on one count of first-degree strangulation and one count of assault in the fourth degree, according to the Corbin Times-Tribune. Republicans have a special way of being indicted under laws that are named after them or, you know, were created by them or because of them. Earlier this year, a woman said Goforth... 44, strangled her with an Ethernet cable to the point where she had trouble breathing and threatened to hogtie her, according to a police report reviewed by the newspaper. The charges have renewed calls from local Democrats for Goforth, a staunch supporter of Trump who had previously been accused of sexual assault, to resign from his seat. Neither he nor his attorney, Conrad Cessna, immediately responded to requests for comment from the Washington Post. So there's that. Also, on Monday morning, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention edited its webpage describing how the novel coronavirus spreads, removing recently added language saying it was possible that it spreads via airborne transmission. That was removed today. It was a third major revision to CDC information or guidelines published since May. The agency has posted information, had posted information Friday stating the virus can transmit over a distance beyond six feet, suggesting that indoor ventilation is key to protecting against the virus that has now killed nearly 200,000 Americans. The CDC shifted its guidelines Friday, but the change was not widely noticed until CNN reported it on Sunday, where the agency previously warned that the virus mostly spreads through large drops encountered at close range on Friday. It had said small particles, such as those in aerosols, were a common vector. The edited webpage has removed all references to airborne spread now, except for a disclaimer that recommendations based on this mode of transmission are under review. And in a stunning declaration of authority... Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services this week, barred the nation's health agencies, including the Food and Drug Administration, from signing any new rules regarding the nation's food, medicine, medical devices, and other products, including vaccines. Going forward, Azar wrote in a September 15th memo obtained by the New York Times, such power is reserved for the secretary. This bulletin was sent to the heads of operating staff and divisions within Health and Human Services. Now, it's, it's not clear... Um, if or how this memo would change the vetting and approval process for coronavirus vaccines, three of which are in advanced clinical trials in the United States. Political appointees under pressure from the president have taken a string of steps over the past few months to interfere with the standard scientific and regulatory processes at the health agencies. For example, as we just discussed, the much-criticized guideline on testing for the coronavirus was not written by CDC scientists. And it was posted on the agency's public website over their objections. That was reversed on Friday. That was the piece of information that said if you didn't have any symptoms, you didn't need to be tested even if you came in contact with somebody who does have COVID or did have COVID. Outside observers were alarmed by this new memo, worried that it can contribute to a public perception of political meddling and science-based regulatory decisions. Yeah, no shit. Dr. Mark McClellan, who formerly headed the FDA and now runs Duke University's Health Policy Center, praised the agency's work on vaccine development, but said the policy change was ill-timed. 
And Azar also said today that big pharmaceutical companies will have automatic liability protection from lawsuits should their untested shit kill or hurt anyone. So, Azar has stripped power from the FDA, declared himself king of vaccines. He has decided that if a vaccine fucks you up, you can't sue. And he has changed CDC guidelines without review to make you think sending your kids back to school and opening indoor businesses is totally safe because we're under review about whether this is spread uh, through the air. And, you know, we aren't really quite sure if you should or shouldn't be tested if you came in contact with somebody who had the virus. Yeah, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. And apparently Trump doesn't like people paying tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so he has sealed off access to the steps of the Supreme Court today. That's after he accused Ruth Bader Ginsburg's granddaughter of lying about her final wishes and alleged Adam Schiff wrote them instead. Everyone, please vote for Joe and Kamala. Speaking of Joe, the cash windfall he is seeing has prompted him to add GOP states to his campaign map. From the Associated Press, Joe Biden is using campaign cash advantage over President Trump to add Republican-leaning Georgia and Iowa to his paid media footprint, bringing the Democratic challenger's television and digital battleground map to an even dozen states. The expansion reflects Biden's newfound status as a fundraising behemoth and his campaign's longstanding promise to set up multiple paths to the 270 electoral votes needed to win. The Biden campaign confirmed Sunday that Democrats' joint financial operation had $466 million cash on hand to begin September. Trump and the GOP had $325 million. Biden and the Democratic National Committee had earlier reported raising almost $365 million in August. Record. And outpacing Trump and the Republican National Committee by more than $150 million. These figures, by the way, do not include a fundraising windfall for Democrats since Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Friday evening. In the first 24 hours of the liberal icon's death, donors chipped in $71 million through ActBlue. That's the party's online fundraising platform, and they did this even as Republicans promised a swift confirmation of a successor. The Biden campaign did not disclose exact spending plans for Georgia and Iowa, but described a significant commitment. In his 2016 election win, Trump won those two states by 5.1 and 9.4 percentage points, respectively. And Republicans have maintained a campaign presence there, leaving the president's team confident of repeat victories. Biden is now advertising in 10 states Trump won in 2016, including Arizona, Florida, Michigan, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Biden is also advertising in two states, Minnesota and Nevada, that Democrat Hillary Clinton carried in 2016. Both are prime targets for Trump. The president believes he can make gains among white voters in Minnesota and Latinos in Nevada. There are practically no scenarios for a Trump victory if Biden wins in Iowa and Georgia. Likewise, Biden would face an almost impossible map if Trump flipped Minnesota and Nevada. And so, finally, uh, here we go. This is some more voting news. A federal judge in New York on Monday ordered the Postal Service to reverse operational changes that have slowed mail delivery in recent months and to prioritize election mail. That's the latest legal rebuke to Louis DeJoy's management of the agency. Management, I put in quotes. Uh, By Friday, Judge Victor Marrero said in his ruling, the Postal Service must begin treating all election mail, including ballots, as first-class or priority mail. They must pre-approve all overtime requests from October 26th to November 6th, the peak times for election mail, and they must submit a plan to restore on-time delivery of mail to its highest level this year. Quote, the right to vote is too vital a value in our democracy to be left in a state of suspense in the minds of voters weeks before a presidential election, raising doubts as to whether their votes will ultimately be counted. Uh, The order came in response to a lawsuit that mail-in voters from six states brought against Trump and DeJoy, the postmaster general. 
The suit, filed in the federal district court in Manhattan, sought to block cuts that DeJoy had put in place just months before the election in November. Marrero also ordered Mr. DeJoy to reverse the ban and to provide the court with weekly updates of the Postal Service's progress in mail delivery. And this order came after the courts in two states issued rulings last week that could expand mail-in voting. In Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court paved the way for mail-in ballots to be counted by extending the date by which election officials must receive them and allowing expanded use of drop boxes. And in Washington state, a federal judge blocked Mr. DeJoy's operational and policy changes, issuing a nationwide injunction to force the Postal Service to reverse them. So that's what's going on uh, with the Postal Service. And we're going to talk a little bit about that again and some of these issues a little bit later in the show in the interview with David Scheimer. But right after this break, we will be talking to Lynette Grable. She's running for the U.S. congressional seat in Wyoming, and we're going to try to flip it blue. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's A.G. from The Daily Beans. During these economically turbulent times, everyone's looking for a way to feel more financially secure. So if you are needlessly throwing money at high-interest credit card debt, check out Upstart. It's the revolutionary online lending platform that knows you're more than just a credit score. And now is the time to find out how low your Upstart rate can be to help pay off your high-interest credit cards. Unlike other lenders, Upstart can reward you based on your education and your job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. You don't need a degree or a diploma to apply, though. Upstart lets you skip going to the bank because it's completely online, and they offer loans from 1000 to 50000 so you can consolidate your debt in one easy fixed-rate payment. Upstart makes it fast and simple to check your rate. And since it's a soft pull, it won't impact your credit score. They don't do the hard pull until you accept your rate and proceed with your application. The best part, if the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards and meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt and get back to using your money the way you want to with Upstart. See why Upstart has 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash dailybeans to find out how low your Upstart rate can be. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. Your loan amount will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain and other information provided in your loan application. Not all applicants will qualify for the full amount. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm blue. In 2013, she became the tribal liaison for government and nonprofit entities, training and advising on amber alerts and child sex trafficking in Native American communities. She founded Not Our Native Daughters, a nonprofit dedicated to educating and bringing awareness to the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. She is running against Liz Cheney, boo, who has held the seat since 2017 for the one seat in Wyoming, the least populous state. Everybody, please welcome Lynette Grable. Lynette, thank you for speaking. Speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to speak with you. And I've been speaking with um, people running, trying to flip seats blue across the country uh, in our U.S. House of Representatives. And you are a single mother. I've talked to so many single parents who are running. And I think that that is so important to have that representation in Congress. And you are the first Native American nominated to represent Wyoming at the federal level. Yes, that is true. It's quite historic, isn't it? (laughs) 
it is. This is there's so many firsts. And I mean, we 2018 was incredible. And and I think 2020 is even going to be more so. So I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about Wyoming and and the constituency there and who you are running to represent in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? The the heart and soul of my campaign is people. Um, you know, as you stated, I'm a divorced single mother of three children. Um, I'm a hard worker, just like everybody else throughout our state. Um, and I want to represent, you know, those people. I want to represent uh, the constituents of Wyoming that hasn't had a voice, who hasn't had a seat at the table. Uh, one thing I always say is, I'm fighting for a seat at the table so that I can bring others to have a seat at the table. Mm. I believe that collective voices and collective issues uh, should always be collaborative and always be united. Um, And this is what I'm trying to bring uh, with the U.S. House of Representatives for the state of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think, in fact, I know that Liz Cheney doesn't have that uh, on her plate to represent the people, the working people, the families, the single moms, the single dads, uh, you know, and and the hardworking uh, folks of Wyoming. She that's just not just not in her wheelhouse. Can you tell us some of the differences between you and your opponent? Yeah, absolutely. I think my opponent and myself are night and day. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not a multimillionaire. Um, I don't uh, have connections to multinational corporations uh, across the nation or even the world. Um, and, that's, and that's true. You know, when Liz Cheney gets elected into office and she gets into D.C., she has promises to multinational uh, oil and gas uh, corporations. Um, and if I get elected... I have promises to people, to everyday people, to people who are unemployed right now, people who have suffered job losses from the oil, gas, and coal industry. I have promises to, pe- to people who just want a better way of life. Um, and so that's the difference between me and her. Um, I, will, I believe that all policies should lead back to people and should lead back to the community. Um, and I believe that you should have a, a proper uh, representation. And this is why I always say representation matters. Repres- representation does matter in DC and at the forefront of our nation, especially at this time. We're living in a time of, of political discourse and social divide. Uh, you're going to need strong, valid leaders who are going to bring the people together. And the, and the 53 uh, million Americans in this country who Uh, are the working class or who live below the poverty line, these are the people that need the representation most. Mm, Yeah, I agree. And there are three major issues that are inextricably linked, particularly in the time of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And the first is jobs in the economy. And so many people's Healthcare, which is the second item that I want to ask you about, are tied to their jobs. We've lost so many jobs because of this administration and the Republicans' mishandling of this pandemic. And then, of course, the environment and and conservation, because when we do things to protect the planet, like supporting the Green New Deal, which you do, we create those clean new jobs. And we can, you know, and when you expand and protect the Affordable Care Act, then we can all like fall under the healthcare umbrella. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your energy policy uh, and the environment, and then of course healthcare and jobs and, and how those are all linked together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what? When I was 
uh, last on Capitol Hill, I had the opportunity to discuss several of the, the tenets of the Green New Deal uh, with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and the Green New Deal, I believe, is a hugely important aspirational um, initiative. Um, I also believe and support the Biden and Sanders Unity Task Force recommendations. Um, a number of the vital points that uh, uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez emphasized are structured in a way that they, they can become a reality. And I truly believe that. And I truly believe that for Wyoming. Um, the Renew Deal, I, I believe, is the next step, a huge step that our nation needs to do, um, not only for our country, but it's essentially important for Wyoming, only because we're a huge energy state. Um, and every year we're seeing a decline um, in both oil, gas, and coal. And we're seeing Wyomingites losing jobs in the, the, the in, in, in mass uh, unemployment rates. Um, and even more so because of, of COVID-19 and we're living through this pandemic. So yes, it is important that not only do we think about moving forward, and you know what, you have to be an idealist, right? You have to be an envisionist. You have to see, you know, us moving towards renewable energy um, and how can that replace jobs and how can that make our planet better? Because, you know, if we take care of Earth, Earth takes care of us. And so we have to take care of our environment. We have to, you know, bring the science of that to the forefront of the conversation. And coming, living here in Wyoming, where we have our beautiful mountains, we have, you know, ski areas, we have hiking, we have our hunting and uh, ranchers and our anglers. You know, these are things that are important to Wyomingites. Um, not if you're just a Democrat, but they're important to Republicans too. You know, these are things that we all take advantage um, and, and have the luxury of living in uh, living in Wyoming. So this is not, um, this is important for, for both party uh, sides. And I believe that we need to start thinking about our future as, in terms of jobs, but also in terms of our environment. And, you know, to segue to another part of your question into, you know, healthcare and how that relates to lost jobs, you know, we here in Wyoming, and I think across the nation, you see uh, the the high rates of unemployment. I mean, they're skyrocketing right now. Um, I know that the, the our state in Wyoming, they're announcing a, a huge layoff to anywhere to two to three hundred employees, state employees. You know, these are people that probably have great health coverage. You know, how do we think about people who have lived in an honorable life and have been working every day uh, and doing what they're called to do. And now they're, they're living in a pandemic and they're losing their job. Um, and not only do they have to, you know, manage through that, but now they don't have health care for them or their family. So I do support the Affordable Cares Act. I do believe that we should make it stronger and better. Um, and I think we could do that collectively. I know there are several issues that people have talked about when we talked about Affordable Cares Act, you know, I, I think that we can make those issues better. We can address them. Um, however, you know, if we talk in terms of the national debt, if we move towards another healthcare system, we're going to add $45 million to the national debt by 2026 if we move into a new healthcare system. You know, just taking the, the, the idea of where we're at right now in our nation, um, you know, in the next year or two, we're still going to be either in the muck of this pandemic or we're going to be in the beginning steps of recovering from it. Um, we need to think about all the aspects that will either benefit 
or bring us to a disadvantage if we move into a new healthcare system. However, I'm somebody who is always negotiable, who always wants to move forward collectively. If my constituents and, and my, my colleagues um, in DC want to move forward into a new healthcare system and it's, it's viable and it's feasible for everyday uh, uh, citizens like myself, and not create hardship and not take people with pre-existing conditions off of their health care, then I'm willing to have that discussion. However, I do believe that we can make the Affordable Chairs Act better and stronger um, and not take people off of their health care while we're recovering from a pandemic or still in the process of dealing with it. Mm, yeah, and while we're in this economic crisis as well, just like you said, and and I I I love that you brought up Alexandra Ocasio Cortez and and the Sanders Biden pact because Biden has put AOC in charge of fighting climate in his administration and fighting the climate crisis, addressing the climate crisis, and I think I love that you are so uh, committed to protect the beautiful resources of Wyoming for all Wyomingites and and. The the best part of it is it is that it helps everyone and everyone globally too. You know, I mean, it's like a win 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 all around. And so, I love that you brought that up. And I think it's so important that you know when everybody goes to the polls in Wyoming to to you know to vote for Biden if they're doing it for healthcare, if they're doing it for um, to get us out of the COVID crisis or. Uh, to protect the Supreme Court, whatever their reasons are, those these down ballot races like yours are so important on the local level to protect, especially Wyoming. It's just such a beautiful state and those resources need to be protected. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so, so excited for your campaign. Can you tell uh, our listeners uh, who support you wildly uh, where they can find information on your platform and how they can contribute to your campaign, either monetarily or through postcard writing, text banking, phone banking? Can you get uh, tell us uh, where they can find that information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can go to uh, com. Um, all of my information is, is on there. Feel free to read through it, read my background, read my compassion for people. Um, but also you can uh, uh, follow me on, on Facebook for Grable for Why um, and also on Twitter and Instagram. And that's the number four? Yeah, I'm sorry, Grable, F-O-R-Y. Got it. So that's uh, Grable, G-R-E-Y-B-U-L-L-F-O-R-W-Y. And that's where you can find all the information you'll need. Lynette, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You are running against Liz Cheney for the seat, U.S. Congress, for Wyoming and Wyomingites. I'm so glad to have you on today. Thanks for spending some time. Yes, thank you for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the interview. Hey, everybody, it's AG. You've been listening to The Daily Beans. And uh, if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me talk about my trouble sleeping. But my problem was solved by the incredible customized Helix mattress. Even cooler, Helix has gone on to start Allform to bring beautiful customizable furniture to every room in your home. Allform crafts gorgeous, high-quality sofas and chairs and love seats to your specifications and then delivers it directly to you with fast, free shipping. You customize your own sofa using premium materials at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. With Allform, you can pick your fabric, which is spill, stain, and scratch resistant, which is great for pod pets. You pick the color, the finish of the legs, the sofa size, and the shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. I picked out a three-seater sofa and I customized it in whiskey-colored leather with a walnut leg finish and a chaise lounge. Came in a couple days and I put it together myself. And I'm crazy about it. I love it. 
it. And it's roomy and modern, and I love that it was designed just to my specifications. Normally, if you want a custom sofa, it could take weeks or months to arrive, and you need someone to assemble it in your home. And they don't even, they just leave it at the curb, and you gotta call the freight company, and there's an eight-hour delivery window. But with Allform, it just takes three to seven days to arrive in the mail. You can assemble it yourself in a few minutes, no tools needed. And they have gorgeous armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight-seat sectionals, so there's something for everyone. And you can always start small and add on if your family grows or you move into a bigger house. And the best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. They also have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners. That's allform.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining us today for the interview is a fellow at the Wilson Center and Yale and author of Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, which was just named a New York Times editor's choice, by the way. Please welcome David Scheimer. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Congratulations on the editor's choice. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I worked really hard on the book, which details sort of the 100-year history of covert operations to interfere in foreign elections, and it was really generous of the of the times to recognize it as such. Yeah, and I remember we had a really great discussion about the book the last time you were on the show back in July, I believe. So I'm really glad that you've come back to join us today. Yeah, no, I'm excited to to be here and I love that discussion and I'm really excited for this one. Good. So here here's the here's the catalyst for today's discussion, a piece you penned with our friend, friend of the pod Asha Rangappa. And it's called Prepare for the Worst, Fight for the Best, A Citizen's Guide to Electoral Interference. And this was published on JustSecurity.org. And I was hoping you could to give us a little overview uh, of this article before we start uh, diving into it. Totally. So what Asha and I try to do in this article is detail what not only we know about Russia's operation to interfere in the 2020 election so far, but also what history and what America's current vulnerabilities tell us about what Russia could do next. So we map out three scenarios by which Russia could escalate its operation to interfere in this election, all of which have historical roots and all of which are um, have been part of Russia's playbook in, in other places or um, would fit um, for America's current mode of exposure. And then we map out at the end what we believe America Americans can and should be doing to help mitigate the potential effectiveness of Russian interference, whether through these types of scenarios or otherwise between now and Election Day um, in November. Hmm. And this is so fascinating. And the timing is uncanny because I guess about a week and a half or so ago, I, I put out a tweet um, expressing my concerns about third party voters or, you know, protest voters uh, and how they are you know, I was not very kind in the tweet. Let's just say that. But it went viral. And the responses I got were very repetitive and contained keywords and just it really struck me as odd. And it seemed not odd. I mean, I should have seen it coming, but a lot of, um, you know, just repetitive key phrases that kept popping up and over and over again that seemed like they were probably pushed by botnets or troll farms or unwitting U.S. persons. Uh, and, you know, we've recently found out that there was some uh, selectively redacted things in the Mueller report through the BuzzFeed FOIA suit under Judge Reggie Walton there that uh, a lot of that was hidden from our view um, about the the depth and breadth of the Internet Research Agency. And then today I put out a, a, tw- a thread on my personal account 
at Allison Gill about how I was uh, subject to and fell for some influence uh, in the in the 2016 election as far as being a Bernie supporter and then having that be morphed into a Bernie or bust and I'm going to protest vote and, you know, uh, write in my candidate no matter what. And uh, I ended up, you know, secretly and quietly voting for Hillary Clinton when alone in the in the in the ballot or in the voting booth at that time. But uh, it, it just goes to show that anyone uh, is susceptible to this kind of, uh, you know, particularly for me, at least, social media influence. Uh, it's it's astounding. I agree. I agree completely. And I think that the trouble with what Russia does across social media um, and generally does with its covert operations is that people can be influenced by Russian interference without realizing that it's Russia that is influencing them. Because when Russia runs its operations across Twitter or across Facebook, it's not a Russian troll saying I'm a Russian troll and this is what I want you to think, but rather it's a fake persona um, who purports to be an American um, who spreads propaganda aligned um, with Russia's objectives and in fact is being operated by a Russian citizen sitting, whether it be in St. Petersburg or in Moscow. And that was the case four years ago. That's the, the, the trouble today. We just saw Facebook and Twitter take down a covert network of Russian accounts, which was announced earlier this month. So this this issue is ongoing. The challenge of, of covert foreign interference across social media networks persists. And hopefully now with the collective effort of social media companies, um, of detective um, work by law enforcement and also by the increasing discernment or awareness of citizens, the effectiveness of those operations will will be reduced, but they by no means have ceased. If anything, they, they remain a, a pertinent issue as we approach um, election day. Mm, yeah. And just like you're talking about, one of the parts uh, of the Mueller report that was redacted by Bill, Bill Barr, seemingly inappropriately, was from the manual, the Internet Research Agency manual, telling um, people who worked there to speak to Social media influencers that have large followings make personal contact. Um, you don't have to get them to completely change their mind, but if you can just get them to retweet or post something that you've said, then that is considered a success. And that was redacted by Bill Barr, uh, one of the many, many things. And so, but it's not just social media influence, right? Can you tell us what we do know about Russia's operation to interfere in 2020 so far? Sure. So we know a couple of things. Um, we know that the U.S. intelligence community has said publicly, Chris Ray just testified, the FBI director just testified publicly that Russia is very actively interfering in the 2020 election um, in order to work against or denigrate Joe Biden and therefore to help Donald Trump. So that's the baseline general operation that's taking place. And it's also um, designed to, to sow discord, which is a continuous Russian objective to divide Americans from one another and degrade our institutions. In terms of the actual components of that operation, we know, as I mentioned, that Facebook and Twitter have found and taken down Russian accounts. And if history is any guide, that will just be the tip of the iceberg because you don't see everything in real time. You only see typically um, little signs of what's transpiring. So I would expect that there is more expansive social media activity taking place that will come into fuller view as time progresses. But we've already seen um, the first signs of it through that recent takedown. Um, secondarily, Microsoft just announced that um, Russian military intelligence has targeted hundreds um, of U.S. citizens, U.S. political figures um, in seeking to steal 
um, their information, their emails or otherwise. And presumably, if they were to acquire that information, they could use it either as intelligence, which wouldn't count as interference, or they could do what they did four years ago and release those emails, weaponize those emails through a third party in order to damage one candidate or another. And then we've also seen other components of Russia's operation around sowing division around pertinent political issues in our present moment, from mail-in voting to the mental health of um, political figures in this country, um, to racial division and um, racial injustice. So Russia is very much engaged in our politics right now. How Russia's operation plays out in the next 43 or so days remains to be seen. But this issue is not a historical one. It is an ongoing one, and it is targeting our democratic processes right now. Yeah. And, and you know, I just recently spoke with uh, Peter Strzok uh, about his new book, Compromised, and he warned that uh, between Election Day uh, and when we get the result, which is not, you know, supposedly not going to be the same night, right, because we have to wait for all the mail-in ballots to come, that we will be particularly susceptible to Russian attack uh, on our elections during that time. It's called the Red Mirage, where they where Trump may appear to be ahead. And then as the ballots come in, it flips over blue. And the whole message is going to be see rigged election, rigged election. Uh, and he warns that we're extremely vulnerable during that time. And you, you also mentioned the next 43 days. What is it about our current political climate that makes us vulnerable to this foreign interference? So I think I think Peter Strzok's point is exactly right. And a point that I think is really important to keep in mind, and it's stuck in my mind, is I spent about half a day for my book, Riggs, interviewing Oleg Kalugin, a longtime KGB general who now lives in the United States. And what he emphasized to me is that the tradition of Soviet and now Russian election interference is not to create problems, typically. It's to make them worse. It's to exploit divisions, tensions, fissures that already exist. So we need to look at ourselves and ask if Russia and Russian intelligence is looking at the United States right now, what opportunities would they see to either sow um, division and disruption or to help one candidate over another? And I think you would see a couple of things. One, you would see opportunities to just divide Americans along topical issues, such as the systemic racism in our country and the protests surrounding it would present opportunity to pit Americans against Americans as Russia tried to do four years ago along racial and also religious lines. So based on who Americans are, but also there is so much division and uncertainty over the process of voting, which is a new phenomenon in the United States, because we have not had an election in which so many Americans, for example, a survey I just saw 31%, only 31% of Americans are very confident that their mail-in ballots will be counted accurately. That is an astoundingly low number and presents extraordinary opportunity to sow doubt about the very legitimacy of our election. Because four years ago, as I reveal in the book, the, in my book, the, Russia had the capability to sabotage voter data, voting systems, vote tallies, in order to throw our country into chaos, to affect our systems directly. And so in terms of what Russia could do next, I would say related to that mail-in voting concern, I would say they could do two things. And that's what Asha and I detail in our article. The first two is they could either seek to change tallies directly or just to cause chaos at polling places on Election Day to sow doubt, to provide fodder for Donald Trump to say, see, the polling places aren't working correct. The voter data is inaccurate. There's anonymous attacks. Maybe it's China. It's all rigged. It's all fake. There is no winner. This election is not real. 
Or alternatively, Russia, as you mentioned, could spread disinformation about rigged polling places, about fake vote counts, about impending violence, which in large part they did do actually in small amounts back in 2016 in order to sow doubt in the minds of Americans between Election Day and the day the results are really known as to whether that result is real. Because what's essential to keep in mind is that the Russian objective above all is to tear down American democracy, to show the world and to show Americans that democracy does not work. It's fake, it's flawed, it's penetrable, it's unenviable, it's chaotic, it is just all around a broken system. And so if you can get the American public to not believe that their election, the democratic process of succession was valid and actually proceeded in a fair way, you are making huge progress in seeking to achieve that core objective of yours, which is to tear down our system. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and the, the problem with a lot of this targeting of our own current divisions and exploiting them, driving wedges into them further, is that it makes it very hard to argue. Um, for example, the China trap, where, you know, if, if somebody says China's interfering in our elections and we go, no, it's Russia, then all of a sudden we're pro-China. Or mm-hmm. for the Black the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, that is a legit, incredible and important movement in the United States. But it does cause division because of the systemic racism in this country. So it those those posts and groups can be created falsely or co-opted in order to drive that wedge deeper. But and then when we say, hey, be careful, they're co-opting, co-opting Black Lives Matter, then it makes it seem like we are against the, the movement, which is not the case at all. So it makes it extremely difficult to push back on. And I was wondering if you had any advice on on how to do that, because when we point it out, it makes us look like we're against what we are not against. Totally. And I think that for now, there is very little that can be done in terms of pointing out specifically Russia is seeking to divide us along X line because the trouble here, again, is that the picture, the portrait of Russia's operation will come into view over time. And without that evidence, as things remain classified by the U.S. government as to the specifics of this operation, that takes away from citizens the the data that could be really helpful. So as to say, see, this is what Russia is doing. And while this movement or this issue is essential, we also have to recognize how Russia is seeking to exploit it in, in the detriment of, of, of all Americans. So I would say what we can do generally is we can advocate for the issues that we believe in while remaining calm, while searching for fact-based information, while encouraging others to do the same by voting and voting early, by having trust in our processes, unless there is legitimate fact-based reason not to, in terms of in terms of how our our electoral process is proceeding, um, and not to fall perhaps for the trap of alarm that Russia might seek to lay. Because again, what Russia is after is chaos, is distrust, is disorder. And so, if Russia were to, for example, sabotage one polling place or five polling places, that wouldn't have a a huge impact on the outcome of the election, but it would or could have a huge impact on on people's confidence in the election. And whether it's disinformation or whether it's a direct um, effort to affect our systems, we need to keep that in mind and recognize that our enemies want us to distrust one another, to be divided from one another and not to believe in ourselves or our democracy. 
So we should both stay invested in our democracy. We should fight for our democracy while also fighting against and being opposed to foreign manipulation of our political processes. These those issues go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and another great example of that is that our post office, our postal service is under attack by by this administration and by the, the person DeJoy who is in charge of it. Uh, however, they want us to distrust it as as an institution. That's part of the that's part of, you know, the the op. And so, you know, I think the better way to go about it is to just support the post office and do everything you can and say that they're great and we support them. And uh, it's it's you know, it's like it's double edged sword. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a real synergy right now between some of the actions being taken by the Trump administration and by our government. And then what Russia is choosing to to sort of blow up for I'll give you two examples. And that plays back into the point I mentioned earlier by the KGB general around exploiting vulnerabilities where the Trump administration Donald Trump has said mail-in voting is ripe with fraud. It can't be trusted. It's, it's, it's going to be filled with fake ballots. We've now seen reports from DHS and from the U.S. government that Russia is seeking to amplify messaging that mail-in voting is ripe with fraud. It can't be trusted in order to undermine our system. So that, that messaging is aligned. Second, we've also seen Donald Trump say that his opponent, Joe Biden, has mental health issues or is not cognitively... Um, um, there, fully present or fully able. And we've also seen warnings from DHS that Russia is seeking to amplify that very message, that Joe Biden has um, mental issues or is, is mentally unable to, to serve um, as president. So think about it. Would if, if, if Russia were just sending those messages out into the ether without that foundation, it would be much less effective. It would, be, it would matter a lot less. Like if Russia said, 12 years ago, while Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, voting can't be trusted, mail-in ballots are fake, it would have been irrelevant. It wouldn't have really mattered because that wasn't an essential part of our system and John McCain wasn't deriding that aspect of our system. Whereas today, it is all the more important and one of the two major party candidates is saying it can't be trusted, it will be amount to cheating and we'll make it so we'll never, quote unquote, know who won the election. So Russia sees this stuff. Russia adapts its methods as time progresses and seeks to amplify messaging that that suit its objectives. But this is a fluid um, operation with agency that is very responsive to our own weaknesses and our own failings as a democracy. Mm, yeah, and and as you brought up all this U- this U.S. intelligence that we're getting about you know misinformation about Biden and his mental health, et cetera. You know, these come from press releases from uh, Evanina, who's the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. But he also tends to, I see in this reporting, or at least the briefings that he's giving to Congress, he tends to equate what Russia is doing with what China and Iran are doing. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yeah. So un- unfortunately, and I think he, I don't, I've not seen him explicitly draw an equivalency other than putting them side by side, but I have seen Donald Trump, Bill Barr, try to say the real threat here is China. And and fundamentally, that is just misleading and not based on evidence that is either available to us publicly or lawmakers have said is available to them privately, where there is no equivalency between what China is known to be doing, which is just public messaging in favor and that's favorable to one candidate over another, as compared to stack that up against what Russia, for example, did in 2016, 
which was launched a sprawling covert operation that reached more than 100 million Americans on social media that stole and released sensitive political emails and that systematically penetrated election systems across our country. And as I said, we now know that Russia is launching another covert operation right now that is seeking to manipulate Americans across social media and potentially with stolen documents. And it remains to be seen whether Russia will seek to affect actual voting systems. But there is no equivalency, again, between that effort and what China is known to be doing overtly and just around policy or just to get around gathering of intelligence. So moving forward, to be clear, if China were to escalate toward launching a covert operation to interfere in this election in favor of one candidate or another, whomever, that would be worthy of condemnation. That would be worthy of a policy response, just as it is with Russia. But right now, that's not the case. And it is not only distracting, but it's detrimental to our national security to act as though those threats are the same because it just muddies the waters and makes it all the more vague as to why it's so urgent or should be that we should be confronting this Russian threat um, vigorously and proactively. Yeah. And thank you for giving us some, you know, some of information about how we can do that uh, during this election. And before I let you go, I, I have about a minute left. I want to ask you when, you know, when, if Trump is no longer in office, uh, how should the next president tackle this threat? So I would say to, to tackle the threat of foreign election interference, you have to forget about the distinction between domestic and foreign policy because they go hand in hand. You both need to renew America at home by securing our infrastructure, mitigating the effectiveness of operations across social media or with stolen documents. And you need to build our institutions up, local media, education, things as basic as health care and infrastructure to get at the polarization in our country to make us less vulnerable, to reduce the fissures, the tensions um, in our society so that we both have a secured election system. We have less vulnerable avenues of information, but we also have citizens who know more and are less angry and therefore less able to be played by a foreign power. But hand in hand with that, you also need renewed American leadership abroad. You need America to be working with its democratic allies, who, by the way, are also under siege in terms of their elections and their electoral processes, work with them in seeking to detect Russia's ongoing operations to interfere in their elections or ours. And then when those operations are detected, to hit back against Russia, not just by one country, but rather by a coalition of democracies that can show multilateral force and show Putin that the potential costs of these operations will outweigh the potential benefits. And unfortunately, we're neither there domestically um, nor in terms of our foreign policy. We have democracy standing alone right now. I mean, I was struck while doing the interviews for my book. The president of Montenegro, whom Russian intelligence tried to assassinate, said to me, you know, we're standing alone. We, we, we need help. We want to work with our allies here. And I think if we can do that, if we could stand with other democracies in favor of the democratic model and against Russia's operation or foreign policy of tearing down democratic systems, while also shoring up our own society, our own polity, we'd be in a far better position to confront this threat where we, than we are now, where we're neither imposing substantial costs on Russia, nor are we addressing the fact that Americans live in two different realities and are effectively, you know, at each other's throats. So I hope that we'll be able to make that kind of progress in the years ahead. But but for now, I think it's about just managing this threat and getting through this coming election before hopefully being able to have a more substantial and comprehensive policy response to this very important um, national security threat. The book is called Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. It has just been named a New York Times Editor's Choice. David Scheimer, thank you very much for speaking with me today.
Thank you again for having me. Everybody, stick around. We're going to be right back with the Good News Block. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. We are proud to share our newest sponsor, The New Yorker. Thanks for supporting the Daily Beans podcast. I have been a fan of The New Yorker for so long. I was so excited to hear they were on board with The Beans. Even as a kid, I remember picking up my first copy and being drawn to the art and the designs, especially the cartoons. The New Yorker has always been the best of the best. In print and online, The New Yorker stands apart for its commitment to truth and accuracy, quality writing, and compelling reporting and storytelling. The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world. And The New Yorker's weekly print issues and daily online articles cover a wide range of topics with something for everyone. Politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and of course, the cartoons. The New Yorker has become the daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage, publishing 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. In addition to that, you can use their apps, uh, read from the online archive dating all the, way, all the way back to 1925. You can solve the crossword puzzles and more. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today. A couple of my favorite contributing writers include television critic Emily Nussbaum, who won the Pulitzer for criticism in 2016, and Doreen St. Felix, who covers highs and lows of today's culture and won the Ellie Award for Collins and Commentary in 2019. A 12-week subscription for just 6 bucks includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to the New Yorker website. That is a 50% discount for you listeners. And for a limited time, you can get the 12 weeks of, of the New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of 50%. Plus, listeners of our show will receive an exclusive tote bag free. So go to newyorker.com slash dailybeans. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R dot com slash dailybeans to get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. newyorker.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the Good News Block. It is my favorite block, and today we have good news and confessions. If you have a good news story or a correction or a confession, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click Contact, and there'll be a drop-down menu that lets you decide how you want to contact us or what you're sending in. Or you can actually just you know email us and say hello, too. I would love to say hi. Our first submission is a confession, and it's from Anonymous, pronouns she and her. Okay, here it goes. I'm scared. That's my confession. I'm a school teacher, and I've been so brave this year. I hated it when I lost my students last spring. I worked harder than I ever had at remote teaching, and it just didn't work. My district decided we would go back this year using a hybrid model. They divided the students into A through K and L through Z. Students only came in two days a week. That cut my numbers in half. I felt confident with this model. I bought the scrubs that I could toss in the wash the second I got home. The school gave us a bottle of disinfectant, and I moved my desks around five feet apart. Was it perfect having the kids in twice a week? Of course not. But they did get some face-to-face, and we teachers made it as smooth as possible. You can imagine some parents were really upset. They felt that the students needed to be back in school five days a week. They were missing out on the socialization, is what I kept hearing. It was for their mental health. These parents bombarded our school board with thousands of emails each day. We are the only school district to use the hybrid model. All others are full face-to-face four days a week and remote one day. Their COVID numbers are really high. One school has 43 active cases, 500 in quarantine, and a teacher on a ventilator. When the health department told them to shut the school, they opted to keep it open. That's crazy. 
Our model has helped keep our numbers relatively low. Yes, we have some, but not as near as many as the rest. Unfortunately, our school board, school board succumbed to the pressure of the vocal minority and voted to bring us back to a four-day-a-week with one remote schedule. That means I'm going from 23 to 40 students. I don't see how I can do this safely. This week, our numbers in the state of Utah have skyrocketed. We are trending upwards, and the biggest numbers are 15 to 24-year-olds. So my confession is I'm really scared. I'm scared I'm going to catch this nasty virus and die. I'm not extremely high risk. I'm overweight and have high blood pressure when I'm not on my medication. But other than that, I've always been pretty healthy. I'm five years away from retirement, so I can't just walk away. I guess I just have to go in every day and hope and pray that I don't contract it. Thank you, AG, for all you do. I've been listening to you since the kitchen days. I miss Jordan and her infectious laugh. Normally, I'm not a complainer, but I just really needed to vent. I'm really sorry. That is pretty scary. But thank you for sharing that. I know that there are thousands and thousands of teachers across the country who are feeling the same thing. All right, next up from Scott, pronouns he and him. Bean ladies, please forgive me for I have sinned. Ah, another confession. I have been coasting on my $2 membership since the early days, even though I depend on the pod to maintain my sanity during these stressful times and on the Leguminati to keep me informed and on your humor to make me smile and laugh. As a down payment on my penance, I have sponsored a membership and brought uh, a Super Space Beans. I've bought a Super Space Beans coffee mug. Additionally, I've contributed to a number of candidates here in Arkansas and nationally, as well as to Joe and Kamala through your link. I also included a picture of my silliest pod pet, for your enjoyment. Oh, it's a tabby with a chunky belly. Oh, and pink peats, little beans on the peats. Oh my gosh, this cat. I'll send it. I'll send this out in the newsletter. Scott, thank you. That's amazing. Um, and I'm I'm so happy that you're donating to candidates and that you've you've bought a membership, donated a membership, and got a Super Space Beans coffee mug. Um, I I, I really appreciate it. You didn't have to do all that. Um. I'm happy, happy to be doing what I'm doing because, you know, y'all keep me sane as well. Uh, so thank you very much for that. And um, thank you for using our link to, to donate to Joe and Kamala. And if you want to donate to Joe and Kamala, please use our link. It's special for Beans listeners, it's special for the Leguminati uh, and a couple other friends of ours. Um, it is uh, put up by John Bain, one of the campaign finance chairs for, for Joe and Kamala. And you can find it on my personal Twitter, at Allison Gill. Follow me there if you don't already. And I know it's weird to hear my name still. You can you can still call me AG. That's fine. But my pinned tweet there is my little video about how excited I am that I'm not bound by the Hatch Act anymore and I can ask for money for a campaign. Um, so the link is in that tweet, that pinned tweet, uh, at Allison Gill. So do that. And thank you, Scott, for doing that. I really appreciate it. And for the pod pet picture, chunky belly. Uh, next up, from anonymous, pronouns she and her. Uh, this year, my step my stepmom turned 50, about two weeks ago, actually. Pre-Rona, she had made a birthday celebration plan for a road trip up and down the California coast. Growing up, any road trip we went on, she would point out historical sites and she would want to stop, but my dad would always drive past them. Anyway, due to obvious reasons, my stepmom has to cancel her trip. She was a little devastated, but has been graceful about her disappointment, and she's looking forward to resuming plans as soon as she can. I feel so bad that she had to cancel her road trip. She was really looking forward to it. 
I travel for work, but luckily due to timing, I was able to be home for the week of my stepmom's birthday. So instead of road tripping with her, I prepared a birthday present for her. The week leading up to the big day, I scrambled around looking for things that remind me of her. Knickknacks, a journal, zero waste products, etc. Creating a box of 50 days of 50. I gave her the option to open all the presents at once or open them through the month of September or over the year by her next birthday. She's been opening them every couple of days and sends pictures whenever she opens a new one. The two gifts I'm most proud of. The first is two books I found on California. One on geographical sites along the different highways. Oh, that's so cool. And the other on historical sites, new and old, mapped along the entire West Coast. She's already started reading them and is using them to map out her next trip. The second is coupons I gave her. Yep, I'm twenty. I'm a 28-year-old who made my stepmom birthday coupons. <laughs> she loved it. She's the most thoughtful person in my life. And I truly can't say enough about how important she, uh, step-parents like her can be. If anyone listening is a step-parent, that shit's hard. You're appreciated. Uh, thank you so much, Anonymous, and happy birthday to your stepmom. Next up from CC. Small bit of good news. I signed up to be an election judge for November 3rd. Excellent. Democracy requires personal risk, but it was worth it. Thanks for all you do, Allison, and your hardworking crew, too. Love the Flip It Blue interviews. Very pleased by how earnest and honest the candidates seem to be. Trying to give money in order to donate to McGrath campaign during October. Uh, bless you and all the listeners. Thank you, CC. Wonderful. McGrath running against Turtle Dick Mitch in Kentucky. Next up from Leah. Pronouns she and her. Hey, Beans crew. I have a bit of a confession. First, let me just start out by saying I love my partner's parents. They are great people. They do a lot for us. I'm forever grateful for them. But <laughs> they have been some of the worst roommates I have ever had. <laughs> have you ever heard somebody yawn like they're calling Bigfoot? Think IE from the throat, but with your jaw unhinged? Uh, that's his mom's default setting. Bodily functions on blast, TV blaring, food mess everywhere, so much clutter, no respect for schedules, personal space, or boundaries. Well, it got to be a lot after living there for more than a year post-graduation. But good news. After a lot of scrimping and saving and searching, we were finally able to buy our own house and move out. It took us much longer to finish the process than we originally anticipated. We had to wait an extra two months before signing due to issues with an abandoned village road that I guess serves as our driveway now. Haha, <laughs> yes, easements. <laughs> but it's done and we're in. The silence has been incredible. So here's to my partner and I getting our mental, emotional, and physical health back and making our house into a home. Oh, congratulations, Leah. Um, next up. From Anonymous. And Anonymous says, Hey, Allison, we need your help if you can manage. This is a little bit of a confession. We are Beans listeners. My wife found you years ago during Mull She Wrote, and I got all the updates from her until I started listening to myself, starting in the Beans, the Daily Beans. Heading into quarantine times, we were personally bracing for some troubles, but we, we just locked down. Moved my office into my house and continued business as usual as a financial advisor. So what's my point? We're doing good, and I feel guilty. As a former Catholic, guilt is kind of second nature. Here, here. I didn't hesitate to sign up for the beans and even paid a couple of gift subscriptions. Thank you, Anonymous. But I still have guilt. So my penance is committing $5,000 to various races. And this is where I need your help. To whom do I give money? If you were to pick the top three to four Senate races where the money would go and do the most good, who would that be? I have already and I'm going to give more to Biden and some to my local New Jersey races. Thanks for all you do. All right, here is who I, when I talk to my contacts at the Biden campaign, the places that need your money the most right now, and where it will do the most good, 
is Sarah Gideon in Maine, Greenfield, uh, Cal Cunningham, Doug Jones, Bullock, Mark Kelly, definitely Mark Kelly in Arizona, Ossoff or Ossoff, uh, and Hickenlooper. And then also, really, really important race uh, up in Alaska. Um, Gross. We have a real shot at picking up that seat. He's independent. His name is Gross, but they will caucus with the Dems. So don't forget that one because we can win it. So that's a really important one, too. Um, I didn't mention Amy McGrath because she's kind of flush with cash right now. So um, these are the ones who need uh, need the dough right now. That could change week by week. So thank you for writing in. Uh, but yeah, Mark Mark Kelly, definitely. Because he can be seated as early as November 30th because that is a special election, right? Because Martha McSally was installed by Doug Douchey. His name's Ducey, but I call him Douchey. That's the governor. When McCain passed away. Uh, McSally had lost previously to cinema. She's a loser twice. So we get Mark Kelly in there. We could seat a senator before next year, before inauguration, before January 3rd. The inauguration is January 20th, but January 3rd, I think, is when the Senate is seated. That would help with a SCOTUS nom. All right, that is the good news, confessions and corrections. We didn't have any corrections. So if you do have any of those things, just head to dailybeanspod.com. Send it in. We would love to hear from you, uh, as always. And um, gosh, um, the weeks are going to get tougher and harder. If you need a break, uh, I will step in and fight for you while you take that break. Just let me know. Tag me in. And uh, I will take that fight and um, give you some rest if you need to. I know that when I need some rest, you guys jump in for me. So I'm here for you as well. And uh, stick around. This week's going to get interesting. We've got some really great shows. So until uh, we speak again tomorrow, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>